Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. My goodness, has fall landed today. Cool, rainy, classic woods whitetail hunting weather. But I'm indoors, as usual, cranking out the work. Suffer, suffer. (laughs) But I'll get out there. Tomorrow is another day. Say, I want to address um, some questions from our fans, but I also want to have a few corrections in here. They've given me a page, and uh, let's just jump right to it, because fall is, is with us, and it is hunting season for most of us, so let's answer any questions we can here and corrections. So I did, I did a video recently about what is a real hunter. Someone asked the question. Maybe it was on a podcast, but boy, did that get a lot of response. Of course, the question is, are you a real hunter if you shoot at long range? And my response was, you know, a real hunter is in the minds and the actions of the hunter. If you're doing things legally, ethically, um, and, and it's a challenge for you and you hunt well, it really doesn't matter if you take your game at 20 yards, 200 yards, or even a thousand yards, although I'm a little bit questionable on that one just because of bullet time of flight. At any rate, we argue this endlessly, and I think it's worth arguing because it helps all of us form a better opinion on ethical behavior. And that's actually what's at the bottom line, the bottom of this whole topic is what is ethical performance for a real hunter. But I was really amazed at a lot of the comments we got from people referring to a human being having to hunt naked with no tools. (laughs) You know, it sounds kind of silly, but obviously a lot of us go to that. If you're a real hunter, you hunt like a lion or a a wolf or anything else. You don't have any extra tools like archery and rifles and shotguns. You just jump out of a tree and beat them with a rock or something. So this gentleman says a real hunter rips the throat out of his prey with his teeth. (laughs) And the next guy says, whether I hunt with a rock or an AR-15, as long as I got it, then I'm a hunter. So I would add a little bit to this. For all of you who had these semi-facetious little comments, I do not think you can say that if you got your game, you're a hunter. Because does that include poisoning the waterhole, putting out poison bait, spotlighting out of your automobile at night, shooting something out of a helicopter. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that you can effectively get your game, but it doesn't mean you've been a hunter to do it. You may have been a poacher, could have been a vandal. There are some differences, and these are moral and ethical choices that we have to make. But thanks for everyone who wrote in and commented on that. I'm glad we're all thinking about it. 
All right, what else do we have here? Hmm, this is from Tony, and it's about decibels. I did something on on sound and protecting your hearing with uh, suppressors. And he said, hey, Ron, regarding the decibels, the decibel scale is a logarithmic, so it's every three decibels doubles the energy. I said it was 10. Every three decibel sound increase doubles the sound energy. Wow. So in the case where there's an increase of nine decibels, the sound energy is eight times more intense. A suppressor with ear protection is the way to go. Thanks for another great video. Wow. Well, Tony, I'm just going to assume that you know what you're talking about here. Um, but the point is, of course, that uh, gunshots can really damage your ears. And the decibel levels on those are well above what is considered safe. So, yes. If you don't use a suppressor, use double ear protection. And Tony even says, hey, if you're using a suppressor, which knocks about 25 to 30 decibels of sound off the top of a gunshot. Um, he says, also use ear protection with the suppressor. So, yeah, really taking care of your hearing. That's important. All right, now we have some questions. And this is from uh, Kimball Cody. Kimball uh, asks, how do you account for the spin of the earth? Oh, this must be in reference to ballistics and long-range shooting. And what he is hinting at is the Coriolis effect. Now, I think most of us have heard of the Coriolis effect. A lot of us, it'll be the spinning drain thing. So if you're in the northern hemisphere and water goes down the drain, it spins clockwise, I believe. And in the southern hemisphere, it's supposed to go counterclockwise um, because of the Coriolis effect. And all has to do with the spin of the earth. So let's see if I can get this right and apply it to shooting and bullets in flight. So the earth is spinning at roughly 24,000 miles an hour from the west to the east. That's why the sun appears to rise. The sun isn't rising, of course. It's just sitting there, and we're spinning on a globe toward it. So it looks like it's rising as we spin toward it and then underneath. So if you're shooting, and uh, you are shooting a long distance toward the sunrise, the same direction that the earth is spinning, your target is dropping. So your bullet's going toward the target. And as it does, the target falls and you shoot high. Shoot to the west and it's the exact opposite. You'll shoot a little bit low. And at a thousand yards from one side to the other side, it could be as much as a total of eight inches, maybe even 10 inches, depending on the ballistics of your bullet and the velocity and everything else. So not too many of us worry about that because we're not shooting that far. Another one of the reasons not to be doing long-range shooting because you have to take the Coriolis effect into account as well as spin drift and wind drift and the bullets drop and all sorts of other things. It's the humidity and the air pressure changes with the weather and the altitude and holy mackerel, it makes your head spin. When I'm out hunting, I would rather concentrate on nature and the animals and what they're doing and what sort of sign I can read and listening to the bird calls and just enjoying myself and not having to constantly be thinking about all these extraneous little factors that are going to influence the drop of my bullet. So now, Coriolis effect is also going to give you a right or a left, depending on where you shoot north and south. So think of it this way. If you're shooting to the north and the earth is spinning to the east, it's going to be going right, and your bullet's loose in the air, and the target on the ground, your animal, is spinning off to this side, you're going to shoot to the left. Turn around to the south, changes it just the opposite. Go to the southern hemisphere, and everything flips. 
My head is spinning already. <laughs> I hope this explanation at least helps you think about it, uh, gives you a little bit clearer picture of what's going on with the spin of the earth. Basically, though, don't worry about it. Unless you're trying to do this crazy thousand yard plus shooting, you really don't have to bother. Out to 600 yards, it's really not much of an issue. So go hunting, get as close as you can. Don't worry too much about the Coriolis effect. All right, um, this is Boig Wu. Boig Wu says, when I qualified expert, I assume he's talking about in the military, and thanks for your service there, partner. In the Army, I don't remember arch arcing my bullet to hit 300-yard target. Oh, he must be referencing uh, a video I did on shooting flat, whether or not a bullet rises after it leases the muzzle. Boy, I got a lot of comments on that, a lot. People were fighting back and forth and calling each other names and really going at it. It was a brouhaha. Here's the deal, guys. Barrel points towards target. Forget about the scope. Forget about the open sights. Just look right down the bore, right at the target 100 yards away. Launch your bullet, and I don't care if it's going 2,000 feet per second or 8,000 feet per second. That bullet is not going to precisely hit the middle of the target. It's going to fall. Because gravity always pulls your bullets as soon as they leave the barrel. Can't be any other way. That's the way gravity works. It's always pulling. The only reason your bullet doesn't hit the ground when it's in your rifle is because the rifle is supporting it. But once you've turned it loose and it's in the air, it immediately begins to drop. It does not rise of its own power, of its own accord. There's nothing magical on that bullet that makes it climb. Now, this gentleman in the Army might not think he was arcing his bullets in there, but he was absolutely arcing his bullets in because rifles are set up with sights so that we can have a sight line right to the target while the barrel is pointing up to the bullet gets to arc into the target. It just has to be that way. You think about it, it's like throwing a ball or shooting arrow or anything else. When there's a projectile moving, it's being pulled by gravity. So you have to aim higher to get it to cross over your line of sight and then fall in. And that's where the confusion comes in. People see these illustrations of that arc and it looks like it's climbing above the bore. But it's just climbing above the line of sight. And that's why you will cross your line of sight with your bullet at roughly 25 to 40 yards. And then again at 200 to 300 yards, depending on all sorts of things like muzzle velocity and the ballistics coefficient of your bullet and all that stuff. But argue all you want, guys, but it's just basic physics. Ask any physicist. Gravity is always pulling 32 feet per second, accelerating at 32 feet per second. So your bullets are always falling. You have to arc them in there. Mm. All right. That was a good one. Boig Wu. I'm not sure how to pronounce Boig Wu. It's an unusual name. <laughs> and I imagine it wasn't a given name. All right, now this is from Jonathan, and Jonathan asks, hey, it'd really be cool if you could take a video of targets on a hillside that looks really steep and then show what the actual angle is. Ah, that's a good one. So what Jonathan is referring to is a, a video we did about shooting at angles. Someone asked, you know, if it's a 45-degree angle at distance, do you actually hold for that distance or closer distance? And we covered that in another podcast. So he wanted me to go outside because I said that when you're out looking at a hillside and you think it's really steep, it is not as steep as you think. So that's not a bad idea, Jonathan. We will have to do that on another video. We'll, we'll cover it in our regular video channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel. I'll go out to some really steep country 
if I can find some. We're fairly hilly around here. I mean, everything's on a, on an angle, but it doesn't amount to that much. But I'll try to find some really steep ones. And what we'll do is we'll look and see how steep it looks. And then we'll take a protractor or angle somehow, get that exact angle. And you'll be surprised at how it's not as steep as it looks. So that's a good way to do it. We'll see what we can come up with. This one is no name. So we will still read the question. I hope it's a good one. Sir, I only very recently discovered your podcast. They are really interesting, and you have a natural, likable delivery. Well, this is good. I'm glad I read it. You have a naturally likable delivery, which makes the listening and learning process quite enjoyable. In addition, the information you dispense is reliable, trustworthy, and true, which is something that, unfortunately, has now become a rare commodity in cyberspace. Well, I'm getting patted on the back here. I'm loving this one. <laughs> Wish you'd have given me your name. I would really celebrate you. Let's see if there's a question in here. Insofar as potential subject matter is concerned, should you ever have a chance to discuss why we miss our quarry while hunting, what we can do to prevent that, and how to adopt the best mental attitude in order to maximally learn from it? I would appreciate it. Thanks again for the quality podcasts. Oh, well, great. I can do that for you right now, sir. Why we miss our quarry while hunting is pretty obvious. We get excited. <laughs> Buck fever. I think that really is number one. Obviously, knowing how to shoot and shoot well in the field, under field conditions, weather, uh, wind, different climates, you're cold, you're shaking from the cold, but then you see that deer buck. I don't care if it's a doe. I've gotten buck fever when I was trying to take a doe in the past. And even at my age, it will occasionally happen. So what happens is you just get so excited because your opportunity is there. Stage fright, similar deal. So what we need to do, obviously, is really, really train so that we shoot well. No question about that. Now we've got to translate that ability to shoot targets well to actual hunting with live animals. And that's where the adrenaline flows and we really start to get shaky and buck fever. And how do we control that? Boy, it's not easy. It's mind over matter. Experience helps a lot, but most of us can't get enough experience. Um, I don't know how many years it took me. I would have the shakes pretty much every time I came up against a, an animal that I could legally shoot at, and I would start shaking, and I had a heck of a time. When I was bow hunting, I couldn't even pull my bow. It actually made me weak. Adrenaline is supposed to make you strong enough to lift a car off of somebody, and I couldn't even pull a 50-pound bow back. I was so shaken. So... It's a perennial problem, and for a lot of us, it's kind of a delicious problem because it means we're in the heart of the action. This is what we came for. And uh, as someone once said, when I stop getting that feeling, I'm probably done hunting because it's not exciting for me anymore. But you do need to be able to control it. So one of the tricks is to start thinking about seeing a big animal and shooting at it, you know, a big buck, big antlers preconceived, go through that whole program. Um, you've got to picture yourself out there. You see the big animal, you see those giant antlers, and now you're going to make the shot. And you go through the whole process, whether it's with a bow or a shotgun, handgun, rifle, whatever. But you mentally go through that process all the while knowing that this is the big buck. And you're going to calm yourself and you're going to do it right. And if you can run that mental reel through and through, 
A lot of guys will do this even on the target range by using either life-size archery-style targets, three-dimensional ones, or even just a picture of a deer or their big antlers on a uh, two-dimensional target. But be looking at big animals a lot. Even just look at magazines and, and YouTube videos and stuff and see those large animals and get used to seeing that kind of a big beast out there that's going to get your heart rate up. <laughs> and that just helps you learn to control your emotions as much as you can. But it is a challenge, definitely is. And I think I agree with the gentleman who said, when, when I no longer get that excited feeling, I'm probably not going to be hunting much, much longer, and, you know, unless it's just a pragmatic going out shopping to get your winter meat supply. And that's certainly viable and, and valid. But boy, the excitement of seeing animals, even if it's a small buck or a doe, is just a real part of hunting. And I think that's a real part of why we enjoy it so much. It's what keeps us coming back. So yeah, do your training, do your mental exercises, and uh, know that you can make your shot. That's a real confidence booster right there. If you know you can do it, that calms you down a whole bunch. All right, so thanks for those, sir. Now, this gentleman has taken the opposite tack from his very first sentence. He says, he calls me a bull shooter. I didn't pronounce bull shooter quite right, but you know what I mean. <laughs> he says, what a bull shooter. The 300 blackout isn't even close to the power range of the 3030 Winchester. <laughs> Well, now that may be your opinion, but according to the ballistic tables for the energies that that cartridge puts out, it is almost a ballistic twin of the 3030. It puts out as much energy at distance, not at the muzzle. The 3030 starts out with a little more, but the blackout has a more efficient bullet, more aerodynamically efficient. So when the 3030 flat nosed and round nosed bullets begin to lose energy because they're pushing so much air out of the way, they've got a lot of drag the sharper, pointier bullets out of the blackout do not, so they don't lose as much energy. And after 100, 150 yards, somewhere in there, they are landing with the same energy on your deer. And after that distance, the 30-30 falls way off and the 300 blackout keeps going, has more energy. So you, I'm not bullshooting you here. <laughs> it's just the reality. This is the way uh, cartridges and ballistics work. Hey, if you guys would like to have a say in which topics I cover on my YouTube channel, here's your chance. Join our Patreon community and then you can message me and I will answer your messages and your questions. But I will also put you at the top of the list for new topics that we cover. And if you join Patreon, you also get some other perks like a newsletter and early access to my videos. And um, yeah, just click on the link below and check it out. We'd love to have you. Now, I don't know if I have answered this one before. It seems to me I have, but perhaps it was just a similar question. This is from Nathan, and he says, uh, I love watching your videos, and I've made an, uh, you've made me interested in the 284 Winchester. Oh, good. I have several Barnes bullets in the 150 to 175 weight range, and I've used those while developing loads for a 757 Mauser. I was wondering what loads work for you in the 284 Winchester. I can reload the rounds closer to 3.0 instead of 2.8 magazine length. Oh, that's the inch dimension of your magazine. Short action magazine, or cartridge at least, is 2.8 inches. That's the 308 Winchester. And most, well, a lot of magazines for rifles that are short action are 2.8. So you can't load your bullets out any farther than that. And uh, the 284 Winchester 
actually benefits from having the bullet seated out a little bit farther. So a lot of guys will chamber a standard length action rifle for it. That would be the 30-06 length. And then they can get a little more velocity out of it, a little better performance. So this gentleman has found a short action rifle with a magazine that's three inches, and that will probably take care of your longer bullets. So he's set up to get some pretty nice loads out of this. He's now wondering if I have any recommendations or info for reloading the 284 Winchester. Nathan, I, I've got a lot of data on my hand loads, but I hesitate to share that sort of stuff because every rifle is different, and I just don't think it's safe for somebody's hand loads to be used in someone else's rifle. Your rifle might not like the same loads, or it might have a tighter throat or a tighter chamber or looser, and it's going to vary a lot. I think really what we all need to do is study the hand-loading manuals and work from those because those have been vetted and proven safe. And now they are quite often pretty, even at the top end, it's like, yeah, they're playing it a little bit safe. A lot of hand-loaders will go a little higher than that if they very carefully watch the pressure signs and such. Um, and their particular rifle just might like another grain or two of powder from the top loads in the manuals showing no signs of pressure and do just fine. But that is an individual decision that you have to make with very careful considerations for safety. It's just not worth it pushing the envelope on hand loads to get another 50 feet per second. A lot of hand loads are going to vary you know, in muzzle velocity by 50 feet per second anyway, unless you're really, really persnickety and precise about how you hand load. So just go to the manual and pull some loads out, and I think you'll do fine. As I recall, my 284 Winchester was throwing 150 grain bullets at around 2,800 feet per second, and my 140s, I was getting 28 50 and a few would give me 2,900 feet per second. And it didn't seem to matter whether I was getting mountain goats or doll sheep, bighorns, elk. It, it, it just really didn't seem to matter. It was the bullet more than anything. And the reason that the 284 Winchester cartridge worked so well for me was because I had it chambered in my favorite rifle, the, the five pound ultralight arms model 20. Beautiful rifle. And it shot. Now, not super spectacularly for groups. It would shoot at best three-quarter inch groups um, with some inch and a quarter, but it was just so, so precise and easy to use in the field that field shots just, just seemed to happen every time out to 400 yards with that particular rifle. You know, it wasn't a particularly fast bullet. Didn't have the highest BC. I was what's that? I was shooting mostly interlock from Hornaday, 139 grain, quite a quite a while. And then I moved to 140 grain partition for quite a bit. Then I went to 120 grain Barnes TSX. But those are not what you call modern, sleek designed high BC bullets. But they reached out there to 400 yards, taking everything. I don't know that I ever missed anything with that rifle. I'm not bragging. It's just a simple fact that that rifle was so effective that I think that's what made the difference. It could have been chambered for a 757 or a 7mm 08 Remington. I think they would have all worked just as well. So, yeah, just go to the hand-loading manuals. And uh, because you're going to be able to seat that bullet out a little bit farther, you're going to be able to get a, a grain or two more powder in there and probably get your velocity up a smidgen, but I wouldn't freak out about it. Concentrate on field shooting and knowing your ballistic 
table. You don't gain a whole heck of a lot by getting another 50 to 100 feet per second out of the top end rounds. So back off a little bit. Uh, don't uh, take any chances with safety. And I think you're just going to love the performance you get from that 284 Winchester. It's a great little cartridge. All right, this is from Lloyd. And Lloyd asks, what are your thoughts about the 4570 for short distances? Hey, the good old 4570 uh, government cartridge, the 4570 Springfield, been around for a long time, and it'll it'll be more than adequate. Uh, you're shooting a 300 to a 500 grain bullet. Most factory loads these days are 300 grain bullets. There are still a few that'll do a 405 grain bullet, which I think was the military's initial loading. And then the the military way back in the 1800s actually came out with a 500 grain load for longer distance shooting, pushed their BC up, had quite the arc trajectory because the velocity was so slow, but it was there and it could do the trick. So you're, you're going to do just fine at short range. So say 150 yards and in, even with the factory loads, which are loaded down. I got to remember the 4570 was initially chambered for the Trapdoor Springfield. And that was a really weak uh, rifle action. So they had to load that thing at really low pressures. I'm thinking that the uh, pressure was something like 28,000 cup. Um, boy, that's that's pretty weak. So you do not get a lot of velocity out of those in the factory loads. They've got to be safe on those. But hand loaders, if you have, say, an 1895 Marlin lever action rifle, you can crank your pressures up because it will handle it. And most of the hand loading manuals will give recipes for those as opposed to the Trapdoor Springfield style. And then there's the Ruger number one, an extremely strong falling block action. And you can really push your pressures up on that baby. So depending on what you're shooting, uh, you're going to not only do well at short distances. You're going to do pretty darn well out there at 200 and 250 with the uh, hotter loads if you've got the right rifle for them. So, yeah, big bullet. Um, you're always going to get good penetration and do well with a large, heavy bullet like that. Um, I don't know that you need it for North American game, but if you enjoy it, why not? Good one, Lloyd. Now, John asks about uh, the differences in a 6.5 PRC and a 270. Which caliber has the better barrel life, 6.5 PRC or 270 Winchester? I cannot guarantee this, but I would guess it would be the 270 Winchester because both of those have a similar powder volume. But the 6.5, obviously, is a narrower bore. And anytime you push the same quantity of powder burnt down the, a narrower bore, you've got uh, your expansion ratio is not favoring you for uh, long barrel life. The smaller the caliber, the more powder capacity, the less barrel life you're going to get. And that's just kind of a general rule you can apply to all your cartridges. So that's why things like, say, the 257 Weatherby Magnum it's kind of a barrel burner because it's a pretty narrow bore and there's a lot of powder in the back of that uh, bullet. All right. Kolach asks, what are your thoughts on boar snakes? Stay away from boar snakes. They're worst pit viper you've ever come across. <laughs> well, boar snake is not an actual reptile. A boar snake is a device for cleaning out your rifle barrel. And it's just this long cable. And they will usually have an ever-increasing diameter of... Uh, material for scouring out your bore. Some of them will have bristles on it, copper bristles sticking out. And, and what it's supposed to do is clean your barrel in one sweep. So instead of putting on a traditional patch 
and or bore brush and using your solvents and taking each process through. You use this and it does everything in one pass. You get the the, the bronze brush scraping and you get the uh, fibrous material behind it that swells up to scour out the fouling. And, you know, they work pretty well for a quick cleanup, but it's certainly not what you want for a complete and thorough barrel cleaning. For that, you really have to make the passes through the bore with your bore brush and a really tight one and the solvents and leave the solvents in there to soak and do their business for several minutes and just follow the directions. And you'll find that almost none of the solvents say, one quick pass and you're going to be good because you've got to go back in there after they've done their work and softened up all the gunk. So I would definitely use a boar snake, and I do, for quick cleanups, especially in the field or in camp. But when you really, really want to clean your barrel, go to the old rod technique because that's the one that definitely does the job. All right, this is from Abe, and Abe says he's from South America. Well, welcome. His question is, what's the difference between the 3030 and the World War II 30-06 cartridge? Oh, well, good question, and there's a huge difference. First of all, the similarities. They are both 30 calibers, so that means they both shoot bullets that are .308 of an inch in diameter. But boy, after that, <laughs> there's just about everything that's different. Now, they're both center fires, so they have a primer in the middle of the back of the brass case. The 3030 case is much shorter. It is skinnier, and it has a rim, whereas the 30-06 is longer, not quite as skinny, has more powder volume, and it has a rimless case. And for those of you who are watching instead of just listening on the podcast, here is an example of a rimless case. And you can see that the rim does not stick out any wider than the head or the body of the cartridge, whereas uh, I don't think I have a, a rimmed case here. But the rimmed case, the rim actually sticks out. And that's for head spacing. Um, so the the real difference, so from a hunting perspective that you want to know is that the 3030 is a lot slower and weaker than the 30 odd six. The 30 odd six will throw a hundred and fifty grain bullet roughly three thousand feet per second, the modern ones. And the 3030 will throw a hundred and fifty grain bullet about twenty two hundred feet per second in a twenty-two or a twenty-inch carbine barrel. So you can tell there's a lot of difference in the energy they're putting out. And of course, there's a lot of difference in the trajectory curves. The 30-06 could be considered a long-range cartridge. The 3030 is considered a brush cartridge. And that doesn't mean that it plows through the brush and kills everything on the other side. It means it's effective in close-range shooting situations that you usually get in the woods. So figure 150 yards. Some really experienced shooters will stretch that to 200 even 250 if you really, really practice and have, say, a good scope or incredible eyesight for using open sights. I can't hit anything at 200 yards with a 3030, but some people can. So, yeah, that's your major difference. 30 out six for your longer reach and bigger punch on your animals downrange. But uh, boy, the 3030, for as old as it is, came out in 1894. It's still an extremely popular cartridge because most people, I think, end up hunting at fairly close ranges. And say, hey, if you don't need to reach 300 yards, why bother with more recoil? All right, this looks like our last question, and it's from Jim. Jim asks, I've enjoyed your videos, podcasts, and blogs for quite a while. I'm unable to get out into the field this season. Well, that's a bummer, Jim. Sorry to hear that, man. Um, could you recommend your favorite outdoor books, hunting, fishing, camping, general outdoors, adventures, and how-to books to help break my cabin fever? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Boy, I wish I had seen this one so I could have compiled a list for you, Jim, because there obviously are a lot of great books out there. Hemingway, of course, the uh, famous author and outdoorsman, Green Hills of Africa, Old Man in the Sea, a couple of good titles. Robert Roark or Ruark, R-U-A-R-K, in the middle of the 20th century, he was writing a lot of great stuff, especially on Africa. He wrote the Old Man and the Boy series for Field and Stream magazine for a long time. Then there are compilations from the old writers in the middle of the 20th century. Jack O'Connor, Elmer Keith is extremely entertaining. Um, who was uh, oh, that Alaskan character who wrote these crazy wild adventures? Most of them were made up, <laughs> but what a read. Ah, I'll think of his name here in a bit, and I'll, I'll lift him for you, but can't think of it right now. Um, other great hunting books. Gee, I just, I would have to dig in my library here to come up with some titles for you. But there are plenty of them out there. I'm just drawing a blank right now. As I've said many times on these podcasts, the old hard drive sometimes just refuses to kick out the data. <laughs> it's in there, but it's buried under several layers. Oh, gosh. I just can't come up with the names now, Jim. Tell you what I'll do. I will compile a list, and on my next podcast, I will read the recommended book list on there. That might help you out. So thanks for asking that question and uh, putting me to work. And thanks for all of you who had corrections. And I hope we straightened out some of this rising bullet myth business because, guys, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't. It rises in line in to the line of sight. In relation to the line of sight, the bullet does rise. But the bullet itself is not defying gravity and climbing. That's reserved for, say, aircraft. <laughs> Jet aircraft do a pretty good job of climbing, but they've got some uh, aerolons to help them climb up. So I guess that's it for now. Hey, I want to thank you guys. And as soon as this rain stops, I'm going to get out there. I'm a little bit not so crazy about hunting in the rain anymore. But uh, I hope you guys get out and get some good action this fall. I've heard the pheasant season in South Dakota looks pretty good. First, I heard the drought had really knocked them down, but now I'm hearing that they're seeing good numbers of birds. So if you've got a chance to do a pheasant hunt in South Dakota, it might be a good fall for it. This is Ron Spomer. Until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.